Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One thing you've probably noticed is how much this pandemic has thrown so many of us into a high-stress state. We feel anxious. We feel distracted. We are sleep-deprived. And it's happening on nearly a daily basis. As a neurosurgeon, I couldn't help but wonder, what does this constant stress do to our brains? Well, one of my personal idols in this particular field is Professor Robert Sapolsky. He teaches biology and neuroscience at Stanford University. He's also spent decades researching the effects of stress on the brain. He wrote one of my favorite books, a very influential one, called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Zebras don't get ulcers normally in the wild because they're not smart enough to think about mortality and global warming and to be able to feel moved by the plight of a refugee on the other side of the planet. That's Professor Sapolsky. His research shows that non-primate mammals simply don't experience chronic stress like we humans do. Lions coming at him, they run for their life. If they evade it, about 30 seconds later, all the zebras thinking about is this blade of grass versus that blade of grass. And the punchline of all of stress-related disease is we're turning on a system which didn't evolve for dealing with chronic psychosocial stress. On today's episode... I talked to Professor Sapolsky about how the unrelenting stress of this pandemic is affecting our brains and what we can do to try and help. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. This has been a tough year, Professor. I mean... I, I had this strange sort of episode just a few days ago where I was sitting at my desk typing away and doing a few things. And if you were to ask me what time it was, I would have told you it was around 2.30 in the afternoon. And I sit mostly in this windowless basement, so I had no external cues. And then I looked at my watch, and it was 6.45, four hours and 15 minutes later. And I felt very foggy. I just felt like I was in this bubble of liquid. I couldn't move around as well. Is that something that happens when you are stressed? Oh, absolutely. Um, Time perception gets screwed up. Um, Sensory systems get kind of tunnel visioned. um, And obviously, emotionally, cognitively, all sorts of chaos going on. It's been astonishing watching how cognitively challenged my students have been since last spring, along with me as well, um, in remote classes. What is happening that, that's causing that? Is it my, my, my hippocampus isn't storing memories, or is it the stress hormones? What, what is causing that sort of fogginess and that cognitive disruption? 
Well, for one thing, the hippocampus is indeed not at its best. Hippocampus, which is usually involved in forming explicit memories, facilitating recalling them, that kind of thing. Um, Hippocampus, during a time of crisis, is marinating in stress hormones, such as cortisol, and it doesn't work as well at that time. It's an experience that we all know from back when, when like you did an all-nighter and the next morning and time for that exam. You can barely remember what species you are. Um, So hippocampus is highly sensitive to stress. As another feature, right next to the hippocampus is the amygdala, which is the part of the brain having to do with fear, anxiety, aggression, very interestingly. And during times of extreme emotional arousal, severe stress, the amygdala basically takes over the hippocampus which is why what you're mostly doing at that point is filing away intense memories of the emotional extremes. Um, What do you know? The amygdala is not very good at running the hippocampus, so those memories are not terribly accurate, and the hippocampus is going at half speed at that time anyway. So memory cognition is highly distracted and certainly not at its sharpest or most truthful. So you talk about the hippocampus and the amygdala. The prefrontal cortex of the brain is involved in judgment and learning and memory as well, right? I mean, how does this all play together? Frontal cortex, it's the newest part of our brain. We've got more of it than any other primate out there. And what does the frontal cortex do? It makes you do the right thing when that's the harder thing to do. Impulse control, gratification, postponement, emotional regulation, you know, all that sort of stuff. And what's occurring during major stress instead is the amygdala is strengthened, the frontal cortex is taken mostly offline. And this is why during times of severe crisis, we make the most god-awful decisions and have horrible judgment. Um, It's because your frontal cortex is being dominated by more emotional parts of your brain, and they're not very good at long-term planning. You know, it's interesting. We we talk about this this idea that the body can sort of compensate for some sort of issue. If you're having a lot of bleeding, for example, your blood vessels may constrict, your heart rate will increase so that blood flow can be maintained. Are there these sort of compensatory mechanisms in the brain? I mean, do, do certain hormones get released from the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland to counterbalance some of the excessive stress hormones and things like that? Yeah, and what we see here is like a real foundational piece of like the primate predicament and what a mess we are as a species. Um, When you are being stressed like a normal animal out there, which is to say somebody's very intent on eating you or you're very intent on eating someone and it's a a life and death situation, um, everything you're doing with your stress response and hormones like cortisol, other ones as well, um, what's called the autonomic nervous system. Everything that it's doing is exactly adaptive, perfect for your brain. In the first minutes of stress, those stress hormones are sharpening your sensory thresholds. They're sharpening cognition. They're increasing sugar and oxygen delivery to your brain. The hippocampus is becoming like perkier and more, you know, excited things of that sort. It's 
a perfectly adaptive profile. Um, and the punchline of everything about us is we have evolved to instead turn on the exact same physiology for chronic psychosocial stress. It's great. It's life-saving if you're going to be stressed like a normal mammal. If you get stressed like us with chronic psychosocial stress, all it is is corrosive. How, how do you know if you're super stressed? I mean, if you're having a heart attack, you have chest pain, you may start to sweat and you have a hard time breathing. Is there a physical description Physiologically, when you look at sort of the most reliable signs of chronic stress, there's the behavioral ones, inability to sleep, dramatic change in appetite, dramatic change in mood, usually in the negative direction. Uh, there's issues with having trouble concentrating, focusing, getting meaning out of anything. Um, physiologically, uh, lots of us have our gastrointestinal systems that are a bit of the canaries in the mine shaft for chronic stress. Uh, reproductive uh, ability, reproductive motivation goes down the tubes. We're more at risk for all sorts of common colds. Tissue repair is impaired during stress. You know, pleasure is gone. Focus is gone sense of hope is gone, your body feels lousy, you're exhausted because even when you do sleep, it's not the type of sleep that's restorative. That's a fairly broad picture of how you can tell if you weren't sure that your body is trying to tell you that things have been going on like this for too long. When you think about these these various mechanisms that are happening in the brain in response to stress, are there long-term effects from this or is... When we think about neuroplasticity and even some of the more recent literature around neurogenesis, can anything be overcome or is some of this become fixed? Severe stress has the potential to leave scars, metaphorical and otherwise, and in your brain for the rest of your life. And in fact, through all sorts of like revolutionary epigenetic stuff we're learning about, it could be even multi-generational. Hmm. At the same time, there's very little about neurobiology that is written in stone and cannot be reversed to at least some extent. But what you see in terms of those seeming contradictions, uh, resolution with it is the longer you wait to try to intervene, the more of an uphill battle it's going to be. The more calcified the legacy of trauma and stress is going to be in you. And, and these, these scars, uh, you know, that term you just used, what does that mean in this context? How does that manifest? Well, what we're beginning to learn is, you know, chronic stress, again, early in life, puts you more at risk for obvious sorts of things, um, which are all the mood disorders, major depression, anxiety disorders, and they have been catastrophic since the pandemic started. Um, but what we're also learning is some more subtle things, and in some ways, at least equally disturbing, which is aspects of stress can accelerate brain aging cognitive decline, aspects of how healthy and resilient your actual neurons are. And you know, stress is impacting you in a very nuts and bolts way by making your blood vessels more likely to be clogged up. They're increasing your risk of like stroke, like cerebrovascular problems. But even just directly in the brain, stress makes you 
helpless and hopeless. Stress makes you secrete hormones that are metabolically bad for neurons in your brain and cause inflammation there. You know, just a whole array of ways in which we are paying a long-term price for chronic stress. How quickly do some of these things impact the brain? I mean, a mood disorder, for example, in, in as a consequence of unrelenting stress, can this happen this this quickly within months, uh, weeks, even? Absolutely. I mean, just to give a sense of a time span, say all those great stress hormones that are increasing the sharpness of your brain and its energy usage, all of that within minutes, if the stress has been going on for more than an hour or so, it's gone back to baseline. If it's been going on for more than half a dozen hours or so, it's below baseline now. It's worse than when you started. So some of those effects like on cognition, ability to go to sleep, concentration, you're feeling those within hours. Some of the sort of neuropsychiatric consequences, they're emerging within weeks to months. And it makes perfect sense from what we know about the biology of psychiatric disorders that all of us were feeling the consequences very early on in this disaster. What about, what about old brains versus young brains? Going through an experience like this, I have three uh, daughters uh, who are uh, 11, 13, and 15, and like, I think about their brains a lot. Like, are younger brains and older brains likely to, to experience this or feel this differently? Absolutely. And what old age is about physiologically in lots of ways is, at first glance, things are working about as well as they used to. But if you mess with the system, if you perturb it, if you challenge it, if you stress it, it takes longer for it to get back to baseline, less resiliency. And in many ways, all that early life is about is resiliency, malleability. Part of the malleability, though, is if you're young, um, a lot of what your experiences are about is teaching you is this a benign world? Is, a, is it a malevolent one? Is it one in which I have control? Is it one in which I have predictability? And I think having one of those uh, malleable brains learning about the nature of the world in the last 10 months is going to produce a fairly uh, troubling outcome, which is probably really not what listeners want to be hearing <laughs> and maybe more reflective of my state of mind. But Well, I, let me, can I just interrupt you and say, I think- sure. I think honesty is really important. You always want to be hopeful, but honesty has to lead the way, you know, I, I think. And so I, I, I think people do want to, to hear the reality of what's likely happening in their brains. And if there is strategies to, to address it from, from someone like you, I think they want to hear that as well. Well, I think maybe the most useful thing I could say here is perhaps how to protect the world from the consequences of you and others like you being chronically stressed. And this brings us, mm -hmm. I think, to one of the newest outposts of stress neurobiology. When you are chronically stressed, you become less capable of empathy. Mm -hmm. And our circle of who counts as an us gets narrower we become more selfish, we become more impulsive, we become less generous, less charitable. And in that regard, we're basic primates. When the going gets tough, one of the basic primate responses is to look for somebody to take it out on and have your sense of who is a me, who is an us, get much more parochial. 
stress makes the brain less capable of doing empathy for you. And that's in some ways, I think, the most impactful thing. So what can we do to alleviate some of that stress and its potentially damaging effects on the human brain? Well, I talk about this a bit in my new book. It's called Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age. You've probably all heard this tip before. Try taking a few deep breaths to relieve stress. Breathe in, through the nose, and then out through the mouth. Do this 10 to 15 times, and it can pretty quickly start to bring down your stress hormone levels. Also, when I was in Japan a few years ago, I learned about this idea of forest bathing. Now, you're totally dry. You're just immersing yourself in the forest. Nature releases these chemicals called phytoncides. They are nature's own stress-busting chemicals. If you just go and breathe in the aroma of the forest, you're also breathing in these phytoncides, which biologically are actually stress-reducing chemicals. Another strategy I wrote about was the idea of just creating something, painting something, working with your hands, doing anything. It can be really helpful to focus on a concrete task, especially during times of stress. And one final stress buster that works really quickly is simply being grateful. You've heard this. Practicing gratitude may be the quickest, most effective way to at least temporarily thwart some of the negative feelings that people have understandably had throughout this pandemic. Try focusing instead on what you are grateful for, and it just sort of resets the brain. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.